everybody. Good to see you all. It's so good to be here with you for winter camp. I love doing this. I love Hume Lake. I've been preaching here for 22 years, I think, and it's been a delight every time, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm, thank, thank you. Um, and I'm grateful I get to be here with all of you. My son is here with his buddy here from camp, so this will probably be his last winter camp. He's a senior in high school. And so it's been a, a great ride with all four of my kids. I want to show you a picture of my family. That's my wife of 35 years, Donna. We met in high school, and we have had quite a ride growing together. We have four amazing kids, my daughter Caroline, and my daughter Paige, and my son Sam, and my son Isaac are a delight in my life, and I'm just so grateful I get to be their dad and husband. I'm also a pastor at Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, and I'm a theology professor at Biola University, where I get to teach theology to the most amazing young people in the world, and so I'm just grateful I get to do that. This is a little glimpse of my church family as we're praying for one of our members as she goes off to be a missionary in Israel a couple of years ago. Ayelet it is serving the Lord in a really tough place, and we're grateful for her. But I, I want to show you a picture of my church family, and not just my family I get to live with every day, because I, I'm glad most of you are here with a church, and if you're not connected to a church, I want to encourage you to do that. One of the things I love about Hume Lake and its ministry is it's very intentional about partnering with local churches. The local church is the primary place God has created for us to grow. And Hume Lake seeks to partner with local churches because we just want to encourage what's already going on before you come up here and what will continue to go on long after you go back home. And so that's a beautiful partnership that we have here. And I'm grateful for the leadership and that we get to do this. We're going to dive into the book of Ecclesiastes this weekend together. Just four messages on this amazing book. When I became a pastor in 2000 at our current church in La Mirada, we were trying to decide what book of the Bible to preach through. And I pleaded with the other guys to preach through Ecclesiastes because it is a book that asks profound questions and forces us to think about what really matters in life, to think about what we're living for, to think about what gives our lives purpose and meaning and significance. A lot of us don't spend much time meditating on and thinking on those ultimate questions of life, but it's absolutely essential that we do that. And the book of Ecclesiastes is tremendously helpful in that. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the joy of being able to gather here like this. It's not an accident any of, his, uh, of us is here. It's not an accident that you started this ministry in 1947 to have an impact on the lives of uh, hundreds of thousands of people through the years and through the lives they impact. And so, Lord, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for bringing us all here safely. Thank you for bringing us here with one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a powerful work in each of us this weekend. Lord, we're going to go to your word, and we're going to hear from the teacher in Ecclesiastes, and he's going to ask us some probing questions to force us to think about what we're living for. And I pray we'd listen to those questions and be honest in our answers and that we would all move closer to more meaningful lives because we move closer to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you have a Bible, would you open to the book of Ecclesiastes? Psalms is in the middle of a Bible, and if you just keep going through Proverbs and the wisdom literature, it gets us to Ecclesiastes. Book of Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes right here in chapter 1. Uh, this, as I said, is a, is a profound book. It's part of what, what the Bible has called wisdom literature, the Song of Solomon or the Song of, of Songs, which is, is about love. And then you've got Proverbs, which is about finding wisdom and the right answers. You've got the book of Job that deals with the issue of suffering in life and how we respond to that. But then you've got the book of Ecclesiastes in, in the wisdom literature that brings us to another place. It, it asks questions about life under the sun or disconnected from God. If you live life disconnected from God, life just under the sun, what it leads to is a life chasing after wind, a life that doesn't add up to anything of lasting and significant value, as we'll see. And this book has changed many people's lives. I have a friend who, he wasn't a Christian, he was playing professional basketball in Italy. His team was owned by the mafia, and he was living large and, and just having a blast. And he was in a hotel room one night, and he pulled out one of those Gideon Bibles out of the nightstand. And he had had some Christian friends in his life telling him about Jesus, telling him about what the Bible teaches. And he read through the book of Ecclesiastes. He had heard about it, and someone actually had encouraged him to read it. So he read the entire 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And when he finished, he closed that Bible. And he said, whoever wrote this knows me better than I know myself. Whoever wrote this has to understand the human heart in a way only our creator can understand it. And that began the process of him eventually bowing the knee and trusting Jesus and saving faith. But this book has been recognized even by those who don't consider themselves Christians or even think the Bible's the word of God have said that this book is profound. Herman Melville, wrote, who wrote Moby Dick, he said he believed it was the truest of all books. Thomas Wolfe, a, a famous English author, says, of all that I've ever seen or learned, the book of Ecclesiastes seems to be the noblest, the wisest, the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth, and also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. Thomas Wolfe said, and he's not a Christian, he's sort of a tortured agnostic. He doesn't even know if there's a God, but he says, Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I've ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it, the most lasting and profound. Ecclesiastes is an incredibly important book for us because, one, it really pays attention to our experience. It really pays attention to our emotions, our emotional life is, is important, so how are we feeling about life? How are you thinking about life? What are your experiences? You know, I hear people say, facts don't care about your feelings. And that's true, and that's a counter to thinking feelings create reality. But you know what? God cares about your feelings. And I care about your feelings. He made us emotional creatures, and our feelings can lead us in directions that can be truthful and, and wise or terribly destructive and unwise. And so our feelings can't guide us, but they matter. And your feelings will awaken in you a realization that you need something more than what you may be living for. So 
This book pays attention to how you're feeling. This book shows us the greatest fear of humanity. I think the greatest fear of humanity is that our lives don't really matter. We do everything we can to convince ourselves that they do, but do they? Do they really matter? That's the big question. Uh, Is life worth living? Is it worth any significance? And if it is, what does a meaningful life look like? What are you living for? A good friend of mine and I get together frequently, and, and through the years, we would ask each other how we were doing. You know, you loving your wife? How's your thought life? Is there any sin I should know about? But we, we sort of reduced all those questions down to one question. My friend Dave started asking me, and then I started asking him. He used to say to me, Eric, is there anything giving you more life than it should be? Is there anything that that you are getting more life from than you should, more significance? It may be uh, popularity or affirmation or success of some kind or another. It may be an accomplishment or a material possession or, or people recognizing a gift or an ability. Is anything giving you life more than it should? Because if it is, it's going to push to the periphery, push to the margins of your life the things that are really going to give you life. And we'll find out what that is. And so this book is important because it speaks to our greatest fear, meaninglessness. This book is important because it's, it's got a hero, heroism of honesty. I love honest people. Even if they're saying really hard things for me to hear, or things I really disagree with. I love people who are honest. Don't you love honest people? Aren't you sick and tired of politicians who you never know what they really think or what they really believe because they're just trying to give the answers that'll get them elected? People who are being manipulative or trying to work an angle or get something in there or sell you something, who can you really trust? Well, this this writer we're going to hear from is he's honest. And he asks the greatest question what, what really matters? What's the meaning of life? And so let's read chapter one of Ecclesiastes. Here we go. You ready? It's fantastic. You know, sometimes I realized years ago that when I'd listen to preachers, and then when they read the Bible, I'd kind of shut off. Maybe I think, well, I've read this before, i heard this before, I can drift off now, and then I'll listen to the stories that the preacher tells. No, if you're ever going to listen, just listen when a preacher's reading the very words of God. Here we go. These are the very words of God. Help us, Lord. Ecclesiastes 1, 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. 
What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. That's quite a perspective on life. Meaningless, he says. Everything is meaningless when it's disconnected from God, just under the sun. It's got no meaning. And that is how so many of us feel from day to day. And you're not human if you never laid in bed at night staring at the ceiling when the lights go off. And no matter how much during the day you filled your day with distractions... And, and all the things you have to do on your list of things to do. You're not human if you have never stared at the ceiling and wondered if it's all adding up to anything of lasting value. Is it worth it? Especially when you bring suffering into the picture. Is it all worth it becomes the question. What are we all doing here? Why are we bothering? Why are we even here this weekend? What's our purpose for being here? Well, we start off in verse 1, and the book is called Ecclesiastes, which means the assembled group, just like this. And so what we have is a teacher gathering a group of people and asking them these questions and giving a perspective and trying to make us uncomfortable. This book is trying to be disturbing. It's trying to be unsettling. It's trying to awaken in us a dissatisfaction with things that don't deserve our lives. It's trying to upset us. And I'm writing a book right now called 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. And uh, one of them is people who, when people say, oh, that really resonates, resonates with me, that worship time resonated with me, that sermon resonated with me, that book resonated with me, not because that's, there's not truth in that, and that's good, and I'm glad when something connects, but we almost use that expression, like if it resonated with me, it must be true. See, resonating means your heart's going like this, and whatever it is, it, it's the same resonate. It, sometimes the Bible, sometimes truth should be, be uh, disconcerting to us, right? Dissonance is, is should be what happens. It, it shouldn't, everything shouldn't just fit because sometimes we need to be disturbed. Sometimes we need to be shaken out of a way of thinking that's leading us to death. It's leading us to emptiness, emptiness and that's exactly what's going on here. He's saying life is meaningless, and I'm sure every one of you can relate to the thought that you have had at times in your life, wondering if life really matters. We're told in verse 12 that this was the king of Jerusalem. This is from the perspective of Solomon, 
The one who asked for wisdom when God said, you can have anything you want, and he asked for wisdom. And he says in the last section of this chapter, I had wisdom, and even that led me to more sorrow. Even wisdom under the sun just led to a harder life. I'd rather live in ignorant blissfulness, right? Ignorance is bliss, people say. There's a kind of truth to that. Just don't tell me. I don't want to read the news. I I don't want to take an honest look in my own heart. I don't want to pay attention. I want to anesthetize myself. You know, take some some substance to make me numb to the things of the world and the constant stream of news that comes telling us how hard things are in life. And we struggle. And we might put on a smiling face. And we might dive into activities and fill our lives with distractions, constantly scrolling on screens to keep us from thinking about what really matters. Because deep down, we're not sure anything really does. And he comes just both barrels blasting with these questions. Meaningless. Life is beautiful, the movie title is. Is it? You know, Proverbs comes along and says, you know, here's how you live, and this will be the result. You live like a fool, your life will go in a bad direction. You live wisely, your life will go well. And the author of Ecclesiastes comes along, sitting in the back of the class, and says... It's not always how it goes, though. I'm not so sure about that. Can you fill me in based on my experience? Because it doesn't seem to be aligning. And this is the perspective of the most gifted, most wealthy man on earth at the time from Solomon's perspective. You know, Tom Brady, many say the greatest quarterback ever, and He's got all the records for quarterbacks in the NFL. He's got more Super Bowls, more touchdowns, more playoff wins. He had a supermodel wife. He's really good looking. He's got tons of money. And I think it was after his fourth Super Bowl. I heard an interview. And he said, after the Super Bowl, I went home. And all I could think of was, is that it? Is that it? There's got to be more than this, Tom Brady said. There's got to be more. He's got everything the world offers. Everything the people in the world think will give you happiness, give you meaning, give you life. And Tom Brady's saying, is that it? It's just not adding up to what I thought it would. And if you're investing your life in things that don't really give you life, you're not going to find life. And so Solomon comes from this perspective, and what does he say in verse 2? Generations come and generations go. They come and they go. Everything's empty. Everything's vain. And and what's it all worth? What are you going to gain from all of this? Living life under the sun. Under the sun, that term is used 30 times in this book. The Bible in the New Testament has the same basic idea when it uses the word cosmos, translated world, in a similar way. You can have in the New Testament world where it's just the world that God made. But world, cosmos, can be used in the New Testament in Greek to say that that whole way of living that's ignoring God or opposed to God. Life within the mundane limits of the immediate world. And then there's this world, meaningless, havel, uh, emptiness, nothingness. It's a vapor, a whisper. And it's used twice. He says it back to back, meaningless, meaningless. It's like when Jesus says, truly, truly, or song of songs. This this idea of, of doubling it up, 
Holy of holies, the Bible says. Really for emphasis. There's nothing meaningful. It's like building sandcastles. I'm always mystified when I watch people build sandcastles. They put so much work and energy and effort into it. In hours, they're sweating at the beach. And they know the whole time the tide's coming in. And going to level it all in a matter of minutes. But they keep at it. And, and that's this image I think of when I think of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. This teacher comes along and he says, you're putting so much time into something. It's going to be gone. Nothing's going to be left. You're making sandcastles and the tide's coming in before you know it. And he says, a heavy burden in verse 13 has been laid upon mankind. He actually recognizes something going on in Genesis 3 in the Bible when we see that God comes in humans who try to live life under the sun, disconnected from God, rebel against their creator, are judged, and a curse comes upon the world so that we can never settle here, and we'll get to that more tomorrow. And he says in verse 3, what does it profit a man to live life the way we do? It's a business term. And Jesus says the same thing. What does it profit a man if he gains a whole world and loses his soul? And then verses 4 through 7 just talk about the reliability of the natural world. And we're just like little bottle caps floating around in the ocean with irrelevance all over the place. No control. Even the tragic events of our lives, they come and go, he's saying, you can count on the water cycle. You can count on the seasons. You can count on the sun coming up and down. But what's it all adding up to? Is it adding up to anything of lasting value, he's saying. And so then verses 8 through 10 talk about how exhausting life can be. It's wearisome, he says in verse 8. We just keep at it and we get into bed again. Do you know, in one year, if you average seven hours sleeping a night... That means you, in one year, sleep 2,555 hours. 2,555 hours. The average person sleeps in a year, and you still get tired every 14 hours. And it's back in bed. In a year, you eat about 1,000 meals. You wash your car over and over again. It just keeps getting dirty. You go to work, and it's wearisome, he says. The eye and ear never has enough. We, you got enough social media, we got enough video games, we got enough recreations. Bruce Springsteen in the 80s had a song that said, 57 channels and there's nothing on. Now we've got hundreds of thousands of options of things to look at, and it still seems like there's nothing on. Isn't it been interesting? Humans have been writing songs as long as humans have had ears and, and, and been, been on the earth. We've been writing songs. Isn't it interesting? We've never gotten to the point where we're like, okay, that's good. We got enough. Taylor, that's plenty. Thank you. Don't need any more. We got them all. You know, we got all we need. We don't need any more. So they're all basically the same anyway. I think, I think we could be done with the songwriting. No, it, they just keep coming. But what do they add up to? Do they add up to anything? Does anything really change, he's saying? Lion King's song says this, a lot of you know it by heart, from the moment we arrive on the planet and blinking, stepping into the sun, there's more to be seen than can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done in the circle of life. There's nothing new under the sun. The names change, but things remain the same. The human condition remains constant. 
Years ago, my dad had a heart attack, and it was a bad one. And so I packed my black suit that was that bad, and on the plane flight to Florida, I started thinking about what I'd say if there was going to be a memorial service. But I got to the hospital. He was in bad shape, but they took good care of him at the hospital in Florida. And after about two weeks of a pretty harrowing time for our family, not knowing if my dad was going to make it, he was going to make it, and he was going to be going home. I remember going out to lunch while we were you know, at the hospital all the time. I, I remember I went out to lunch one time, and I, I got in the car, and I started to drive to lunch, and I saw a guy mowing his lawn, and I felt offended that this guy was just going on with life when my family's life had come to a complete halt. I felt like everybody should respect what was going on in my family. There can be bizarre perspectives when your life grinds to a halt. But as my dad was getting dressed to leave the hospital and go home, I remember sitting on the windowsill of this hospital. I was way high up in this hospital. My brothers helped my dad get dressed to go home. And I looked out the window, and I watched an ambulance pull up. And I watched him unload a guy about my dad's age. And this is the cardiac area of the hospital. They unload a guy about my dad's age, and they just wheel him into the hospital as my dad's about to leave. I remember looking at the nurses thinking, how in the world can you stay compassionate? How in the world can you care about people when it just is this never-ending cycle of people coming and going? Our family's life ground to a halt for those two weeks, but it never stops, and it'll wear you out unless you find a way out of the cycles that never stop. I wonder how many of us in here know our great-grandparents' names. It's, it's probably not a lot. Now, there are other cultures who value ancestors more than our culture. But isn't it amazing? Even family members, even great-grandparents, we barely even know who they are. Maybe there's an old picture you saw of them one time, but they don't have barely any significance or relevance to our lives. I hear at funerals all the time, and I hear the worst theology in life at funerals. I don't correct it at the funeral, but my goodness, you're, God didn't need another angel, first of all, when somebody dies. How does that work? But, but, but at, 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 at funerals, we've got to step back and say what really matters. It's supposed to be a gut punch when we confront death. And so we've got to think about generations. It's highly likely your great-grandchildren will have no idea who you were. Feel good? <laughs> so, what's the solution? We can't take inadequate shortcuts that'll just lead us down another empty path. We can't just go to distractions or shallow entertainment or just one idol after another. Psychology can temporarily help remove guilty feelings, but they can't get rid of guilt. Religion can help you do moral things, but can it lead to a relationship with God? Philosophy can give you reason and answers, but... We need answers from a source beyond philosophers. Only Jesus can provide the solution to our deepest questions and our deepest needs. And we desperately need something to break the endless cycle of time and give us meaning. So we've got to think about what the Bible says about this. 
It says wisdom. Wisdom is the answer. In chapter 12, we, we find out the answer in chapter 12, verse 13, we're told that th- th- this is what it all boils down to. Fear God and obey his commandments. That's what true wisdom is in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not the whole story, but what's wisdom? Wisdom is having the, the best goals and the means to those goals. And so what are the goals we're after? And how do we get there becomes the question. We need wisdom. We need not just under the sun wisdom, but real wisdom. And here's how Ecclesiastes puts it. Now all's been heard. We're going to get to this again on Monday morning. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So what's this fear of the Lord? Well, the Bible says wisdom begins with fearing the Lord. It's amazing often we pray for wisdom and we don't pray for the prerequisite, biblically, which is fear of the Lord. Knowing God for who he is is what it boils down to. And here's a good definition of fear of the Lord. The fear of God is respecting him, obeying him, Submitting to his discipline and worshiping him in awe. Seeing God for who he really is, is what the fear of the Lord is. And we'll talk more about this later. Here's a, a more, more full, filled out definition. A proper fear of God is a mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we'd be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him and makes us happiest when we're doing what pleases him. Here's what I want you to see in this definition. It's all about God. It's all about God. If you want pleasure, joy, and awe, if you want to do what pleases God, it's got to start with God himself. It's got to start with a relationship with God himself. And if you're not a Christian here, Tonight, and if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, I am so glad you're here. And we've been praying that God will work in your heart so you don't leave here with a life that's still meaningless and not really life. If you are a Christian here tonight, it's time to reassess and reconsider how you're investing your life, what really matters to you most. And it's got to be God himself through Jesus. Fear of the Lord leads to confidence. It's a fountain of life, the Bible says. And we delight in what God says when we see God for who he is. And Jesus is our example in fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is referring to the Messiah, Jesus. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus shows us what right relations to the Father looks like. And meaning and purpose in life can only come through a person. Because Jesus gives us meaning and purpose because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one we need. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be honest about how we're living, and what really matters to us, and what we really think life is about. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be self-deceived in answering that question. I pray we wouldn't fear other people in the way we answer that question. And I pray in the conversations this weekend and cabin time 
and among friends, just walking and over meals, we'd be getting honest with each other, and we'd be talking about what we're living for, and whether or not our lives reflect what we say and think we're living for. And Lord, I pray that we would take an honest assessment, challenged by the questions and, and, and teaching of the teacher in Ecclesiastes to get real and to get honest and to get to life in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.